Okay, good evening, everybody. Tonight's cheer is sponsored. What's that? Tonight's cheer is sponsored by Mr. Bob Horwitz in honor of Mr. Markman and Mr. Schechter, their upcoming dinner. So thank you very much to, uh, to Mr. Horowitz, and we look forward to celebrating together. It's a shame. The topic this evening is gathering sparks. And the, uh, the goal is to try to define success. What, is a, what does success look like from a Torah perspective? You know, in the world, when you say someone's successful, you usually don't mean, well, um, he hasn't worked for 17 years, he doesn't have any money, but he's really good at riding the, uh, the unicycle. Or he could juggle torches, he's successful. Usually what you mean is one of two things. He's either rich or famous. Then he's successful, rich or famous. There's an amazing study that goes back to 2012 where they found children between the ages of 10 and 12. If you ask them what they want out of life more than anything, they will tell you, I want to be famous. I want people to know about me. I want to have my own YouTube channel and hundreds of thousands or millions of hits. That is the ultimate dream of children, and I think many adults as well. There's a study out of UCLA, April of this year, actually April of last year, we're 2018 now, where they've been tracking television shows over 50 or 60 years. Now, the, the point was that when you look at what's being shown on TV, you get a pretty clear glimpse into the culture. Because TV is a reflection of the culture, but it's also very influential on the culture. It creates what we feel is normal. So they would, they would make this assessment every 10 years, starting in 1967. And they found consistently, from 1967 through 1997, that the core values of most popular sitcoms and television shows were based on family, community, relationships. It could be funny, it could be inappropriate, it could be anything, but at least the core values were about family, community, and relationships. After 1997, the next time they looked into this was 2007, and there was a radical shift there was an amazing change. And they saw the most popular shows were no longer about those values, but rather it was all about the pursuit of fame, wanting to get our names out there. Every, every show that was geared towards teenagers, it was all about kids trying to become more well-known, more heard of, more popular. So what happened from 1997 to 2007? What changed? And part of the answer is 2005. What was a breakthrough in 2005? It was Facebook. 
really the explosion of social media, I'm sure, and there's research on this as well, has played a massive role in, in reshaping our entire culture, where most people, most teenagers, and even kids, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, they have their image, they have a video, they have something out there for public consumption. And what happens is you get in this vicious cycle of, I'm putting myself out there, I'm hoping or people are really enjoying it, and I'm constantly monitoring, well, how many hits, how many views, how am I doing? How many people are watching us on Torah anytime? That becomes the whole, the whole pursuit. And then you lose focus of everything. So starting from 2007, it was pretty clear there was a major shift on television, and that was reflective of a major shift in the world around us. The, uh, there's a medrash that seems to say that even some of the greatest personalities were somewhat influenced by this idea of people knowing about me. Source number two is the Medrash Rabbah and Rus. Shim Odem Osem Mitzvah Yasenu Belev of Shalem. If a person does a mitzvah, don't do it half baked, do it with your whole heart. Sheilu Haya Reuven Yodeesh Ekarish Baruch Mikhtav Alav. If Reuven would have known when he was planning on coming back and saving Yosef, if he would have known that Hashem was going to write about him, that Ruvain heard the plot of his brothers, and he had in mind to come back and rescue him, then right then and there, he would have grabbed Yosef, thrown him on his shoulders, and brought him back to his father. If he would have realized that Hashem was writing this down for all future generations, he would have done more. If Aaron would have known in this week's Parsha, when he's growing, go, going to greet his brother Moshe, and he wasn't jealous of the fact that Moshe was chosen for leadership, although he was his younger brother, but if he would have realized that it would be written about him in the Torah, that he's going, he would have went out to greet him with drums and with instruments and dancing and leaping. And the same thing is true with Boaz. Boaz gives Rus some of the grain from the field. And again, the Chazal tell us that if Boaz would have known this is recorded in Tanakh for all times, he would have had a whole lavish feast for Rus, much more than grain. So it sounds like it's telling us Ruvain, Aaron, and Boaz, three of the greatest personalities of all time, they would have done more if they would have been aware of the fact that people would hear about this in the future. That sounds like the 12-year-old mentality. If people are going to be watching you on YouTube, then you're going to try harder. So clearly that wasn't the mindset of Aaron, that wasn't the mindset of Reuven or Boaz. What the Chazal is teaching us is that if they would have appreciated this chesed, if they would have had a deeper understanding of how much this is doing, trying to save my brother, trying to help this young lady, showing, showing my brother that I'm not jealous of him and I'm happy for his position, if they would have realized how awesome that was, they would have done more. Not that they cared about the fame, but it sounds like they didn't fully pick up on how big it was. Why didn't they? 
I think the answer is, if something's not super tangible, if I don't see the, the fruits of my labor, I'm not looking at the result or the accomplishment, so I might not fully understand how life-changing it can be. There are so many things we do where we don't fully understand how this is turning into something else, and this could be changing lives, and when we don't see that, we don't have that, that tangible reality in front of us, then we don't really appreciate what we're doing, and we might not do it as well as we could have. So we need tangible results, and sometimes when we're lacking tangible results, sometimes when we don't see the amazing ramifications of our actions, we tend to believe we're not doing that much. The, uh, the Gemara tells us that the cities the Jews built, Pisom and Ramses, it was only one city. One city was also called by a different name, and there's a whole debate in the Gemara, what was the real name, what was the, the nickname, but the basic theme is that Paro designated a land that was not fit for building. And as the Jews would spend years and years building whatever the city was, the, the structures would collapse and they would melt down into the sand. Why did Paro do this? Why did the Egyptians give this, this land to the Jews to build if it wasn't doing anything? Because they wanted to torture them. They wanted to make their work that much harder. Not just are you working all day under the beating sun and being forced to do this, this terrible labor, but it's not even accomplishing anything. Paro understood that even if they would be forced to do something, as long as they had the satisfaction of, but look at, look at this beautiful structure, we made this, there'd be some level of simcha. And Paro wanted to take away any sense of accomplishment whatsoever. So he said, even that which you're building, it's not going to last. And there's a famous analogy of a man who was in prison. He was there for decades. And they told him, what you have to do 10 hours a day is you have to turn this wheel. And it was very hard to turn, but that's what he did. And they explained to him, that what you're doing here is you're grinding wheat. And with this wheat, it's sold at the, the markets in the, in the, for the common folk, and uh, you're helping civilization. So for all of the years this guy was in jail, spending 10 hours a day pushing and sweating and toiling over this you know, wheel, he was imagining to himself all of the children that he was feeding. And those people who were in need and they didn't have enough food, I'm producing more wheat and I'm helping the masses. And then eventually when he was finally freed, they told him, do you want to see what you created? He said, yes, I would love to. And he was picturing this warehouse full of wheat that's been stored up for years and all of the things that, that he's been helpful with. And they chuckled and they said, you were doing nothing the whole time. That wasn't producing any wheat that was just spinning a wheel. It was worthless. Can you imagine that disappointment? We need to feel that we're accomplishing something, and usually the way we feel that is by seeing something tangible, something that I could look at, something that I could touch. And when we lack something that's tangible, it's hard to feel we're really producing anything significant. The problem with this is the majority of the major accomplishments in life are usually not tangible. 
Now, some people are good with their hands. They could put together a dresser, you buy something from Ikea, and you could build a whole bookcase. I cannot do that. But I, I would imagine someone who could do that, th there's a sense of satisfaction. I, I spent time, I, I took out the uh, instruction booklet, I followed instructions, also that's something I cannot do, and I put the thing together, it feels good. However, the, the major accomplishments, the major achievements in life are oftentimes not tangible, and therefore it's that much harder for us to feel that we actually did something. I want to take you on a, on a quick, interesting, Kabbalistic journey. And this was going to explore why we went down to Mitzrayim, why we went to Egypt in the first place. What was special about Egypt? I want to explore the reason for that, and at the same time gain an insight into the purpose of Gullus. Why are we in exile? What are we doing scattered throughout the entire world? Now, you'll say the reason we went to, to Egypt, that was a prediction, that was a prophecy. Hashem had the conversation with Avraham. You should know that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. That was all part of the process. But why Egypt? What was special about Egypt? There's a verse in Hosea, a very cryptic verse. This is source number three. Uzatihali ba'aretz. I will sow her in the land. Virichamti aslo ruchama. And I will have compassion on those who have not yet received compassion. Vamarti lilo ami. And I will say to those who are not my nation, I will say, you are my nation. So what is this referring to? I'm going to, to plant in the land and have compassion on those who have not received compassion. I will tell those who are not my nation, you are my nation. What is that talking about? The Gemara in Pesachim comes along. And Amr Abel Azar Hashem dispersed Klal Yisrael amongst all of the nations throughout the entire world. For what reason? In order that we should gather converts. That we should bring, the literal understanding of this Gemara is, is that we should bring people from other nations into Yadus, into Judaism. And that's what it's referring to. Hashem is sowing the seeds of truth in order to produce, to blossom forth from those seeds, more people to join. Those people who have not received Rachamim, or who are not my nation as of yet, they now have the opportunity to be called my nation. So what is this whole thing about we're dispersed throughout the world to, to gather in non-Jews as converts? Anybody who knows anything about the Jewish process, we know we're not big into converting people. If anything, we have many sources that speak about the fact that we don't. We are not proactive in converting. Why not? It sounds like it'd be a beautiful thing. Bring in more people, tachas kanfei, show them truth. Two basic reasons why we stay away from converting. One is because we're nervous that a person gets inspired, but if we're too proactive in that process, they might not really feel it deep down, and eventually, they're not going to want to continue. And what do you do at that point? 
Okay, you know what? It's, it's been fun. Thank you so much, but it's not working out. So we have a principle in, in metaphysics that you could add to Kedusha. You could add higher levels of sanctity, but you can't take it away once it's there. So one reason we're not proactive in converting people is because we're concerned for the people. We don't want to mess them up if they feel this is not the lifestyle that I want. Then they're stuck in it. The second reason is we're concerned for Klal Yisrael. If we have people who convert, and now they're, they're walking the walk, so to speak, but if it's not real, it's not sincere, they're not genuine, so we have now a whole segment of the Jewish people who are not really inspired. So for those two reasons and others as well, we're not proactive in converting. Yet the Gemara seems to be saying that the reason why we have Golis, why we're spread throughout the entire world, is to gather in those neshamos. So comes along the Orachayim, and the Orachayim shares with us an idea we find in the writings of the Arizal. He says, you should know that Adam Harishon, who Elon Shabohayu Tuluyim Kohan Neshamos, Adam Harishon, the first human being, was the tree where all the Neshamos, Shel Kedusha of sanctity, they were sprouting forth from Adam. And all of those that would eventually be brought into the world, they all came from Adam. Ukishachata Adam, however, when Adam and Chava made the mistake of eating from the Eitz Hadas, the tree of knowledge, Sholat Chilek Hara, now these words we're going to say, but we're not going to fully understand, which is like most Kabbalistic teachings. We can say the words, we don't really know what it means. But at least we should be familiar with the idea. When they ate from the Eitz Hadas, then this, the force of evil was more manifest in the world, and it took captives, many neshamos, many souls that were growing from the tree of Avram, were now taken into the darkness of this force of evil. So from that point on, the Am Hashem, the nation of Hashem, was trying to clarify and to pull back these neshamos that were taken after the chait and bring them back to Kedusha. Be'emtsos makor Kedusha. How do we do that? Through the means of that pure force of sanctity that Hashem implanted within us, which is Torah and mitzvos. So Klal Yisrael has been on a mission ever since the beginning of humanity, that mission is, go throughout the world, find those neshamas that were taken captive from the very beginning of time, and bring them back home. Now, writes the Orachayim, sometimes the neshama doesn't need anybody to rescue it. Pa'omim hanefesh me'atzma, that neshama will come out by itself from the darkness. He says there'll be a feeling within a person that's almost unexplainable, but there's an inspiration, there's a connection to Judaism that pulls somebody, it's a taiva, it's a desire to, to follow this path. And then you can know when a person has that level of sincerity that this is a neshama that's been trapped in darkness for who knows how many thousands of years, and it's finally having the opportunity to come into the light. When you have the chance to speak to Gerit Tzedek, to people who have converted, who are the real deal, 
oftentimes when you ask them, what was it? What inspired you? Many, many will answer, I don't know. I always felt kind of Jewish. Or I always, I always connected with Judaism. I didn't have much exposure to it whatsoever, but there was always something that kind of drew me in, and, and I knew deep down this is something I had to do. I've heard this from many, many Gerim. And likely it's coming from what the Orachayim is saying. It's in the Shema Tahora that's been trapped in darkness for so long, and finally it's just bursting forth. Concludes the Orachayim, we had to go to Mitzrayim. The Jews had to go to Egypt because that was the Mekorah Choshech. That was the central spot of darkness and impurity in the world. And based on this perspective, where you find those places of Tumah, you find those, those areas of darkness, then you can know for sure that buried with inside the darkness are these beautiful radiant neshamas that just need to come out. So we were sent to Mitzrayim with a mission. And that mission was, gather the neshamos and bring them home. Gather the sparks. There's an amazing, uh, amazing story. I have a good friend of mine going back now many years. His name is Shamir Buzini. Buzini is a classic Jewish name. Shamir grew up in uh, San Clemente in California, and his father was not Jewish, his mother was, with really zero Jewish connection. The only slight connection he had was his grandfather, his mother's father. Now, he also had no formal education. He could barely read Hebrew. He was brought up in Oklahoma. But Shamir told me, that for some strange reason, whenever his grandfather would drop him off at school in the mornings, he would always say to him before he got out of the car, Remember Shamir, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. There is only one God. Keep that in mind. Be proud of who you are. So his grandfather didn't know much of anything. He knew the first line of Shema. And for some reason, he wanted to impart that on, on his grandson every day. I would have been somewhat embarrassed, right? My grandfather's dropping me off. Like, Keep it down. Tell me in the car before I open the door. Shamir went to a yeshiva in San Diego. This yeshiva existed for four years, and based on all sorts of reasons, I assume financial and political, it closed down. I had the opportunity of actually visiting that yeshiva for a little bit. And um, although it didn't last that long, it did produce a Shamir Buzini, who right now has been learning for the last 20 years, and he lives in Queens with his wife and children, Shomer Torah Mitzvos. You can just imagine, generations from now, the, the gedolim that will be produced through Shamir Buzini, based on his grandfather saying the Shema in the morning before he dropped him off at school. Little things we don't really pick up on, we're gathering sparks. The idea of gathering sparks is not limited to converting people, but the Arizal teaches us that the idea of gathering sparks is also much broader than non-Jews or even Jews. It's something metaphysical. In source number six, the Pri Tzaddik quotes from the Arizal, When the Gemara says that we're dispersed throughout the world to gather in converts, 
it's not only referring to actual people, it's referring to nitzotzen kedishin, holy sparks that give life and breathe existence into the world. Hashem is creating the world every second. Right? We read every day in the davening, kulam, that you breathe life into the world. How does Hashem breathe life into the world? Through something called nitzotzots, through these spiritual sparks that are everywhere around us. That says the Arizal, that's the point of Golis, that's the point of going down to Mitzrayim, to gather those sparks. Were we successful? Did we gather them all together? So the Torah tells us when we leave Mitzrayim, the Yenotzlu es Mitzrayim, that we wiped them clean. And the simple understanding of that is because they gave us all of their belongings, their silver and their gold and their clothing, so we left them with nothing. However, many of the Kabbalistic sources teach us it's referring to the Kedusha. All of those sparks of sanctity that were floating around Mitzrayim, whether Nishamos of people or just the, the, the force of Kedusha hidden within the, uh, the darkness, we were able to get everything from Mitzrayim, and that's why there's a very interesting prohibition. A Jew cannot live in Egypt. A Jew is allowed to live any other place in the world. If you want to live in Saudi Arabia, I wouldn't recommend it, but there's no issue with it halachically. The one place you can't live is Egypt. And the famous question that many people address is, the Rambam lived in Egypt? And the Rambam himself, when he signed his letters, he, he would write, this is Moshe ben Maimon, who lives in Egypt, and therefore I'm transgressing the Torah. But why can't we live in Egypt? So the sources explain that once we've taken out all the Kedusha of a particular place, then lingering there further is a waste of life. You don't belong here. You have to be in a place where you gather more sparks. The analogy I, I once read, take for example, you have uh, someone doing construction on your home. And every morning he gets there at 6.30 and um, he has his crew with him and they're working for a couple of weeks and you're trying to be nice, you want them to make sure to, to finish the job and not to leave you high and dry. And you make him fresh brewed coffee every day. And then finally, after a few weeks, the job is done. You pay him, thank you so much, it looks great. I'll take your card, I'll pass it along to other people. The next morning at 6.30, you're thinking maybe he forgot his tools or something. You go downstairs, you quickly put your, your bathrobe on, and there he is, in full glory with his belt and everything. Good morning! Good morning. How could I help you? No, I just, I've been here for the last three weeks and I, I really like the coffee and I love the environment of the, the kitchen living room area. I just want to hang out a little bit. <laughs> so that's kind of awkward. If you're a nice guy, you might make him a cup of coffee. But if he keeps on doing that, eventually you'll, you'll call the police. <laughs> so the Torah is telling us, Mitzrayim is taken care of. All of the nitzotzos, all of those sparks, those holy sparks have been taken. Don't go back there. Now, how did we do it? How did we gather those sparks? Do we have a magical formula, a particular uh, spiritual dust buster going around and gathering them all in a little jar? How do we gather those sparks? Take a look at number seven, Urcha Sadikim. When he's explaining this Gemara, the very last line, 
He says, When we're in Golis, when we're interacting with the non-Jewish world, as long as we conduct ourselves with honesty, and we're not playing games, and we're not being deceitful, and we're not manipulating, then then they attach themselves to you. So whether those sparks are people, potential converts, whether those sparks are Jews who have not yet been exposed to authentic Torah, or whether those sparks are just little holy things that we're trying to gather, there's no magical formula. The way to do this mystical thing is very practical and down to earth. Just be a mensch. Be honest. Treat people right. So that's one way we gather in sparks. The other way is you look back at the Orachayim, and he said very clearly, how did the Jews gather in those holy sparks in Mitzrayim? Through the source of Kedusha, which is Torah and mitzvos. Nothing fancy. No Kabbalistic texts. Learning and doing mitzvos, we have no clue what that accomplishes. So here's a great example when we speak about success. The Jews were successful in their mission of gathering those in Nitzotzos. Yet it was something that I'm sure most of the Jews who were there, you picture it, you're working for years and years as slaves. Are you seeing any massive results to what you're doing? Are you seeing all these sparks fly into a little container, knowing full well that we're accomplishing our mission here as the chosen people to gather in Kedusha? I don't know anything what's going on. I'm just doing my thing. Yet that could be real accomplishment. I think it's true on a national level, and that's true on a personal level as well. Sometimes the greatest accomplishments are things that we can't even see, we're not even in tune with. I've told this story before, but I, I, I think it's a powerful one. There is a, a couple getting married, both from non-religious backgrounds. And I was going to have a meeting with the Hassan and Kala, together with her parents and his parents. And she told me, I want to warn you, Rabbi, that my father, you know, he's not so religious himself. He had somewhat of a traditional upbringing, but he hates orthodoxy, and more than anything, he hates orthodox Jews, and more than that, he hates orthodox rabbis. So I was looking forward to the conversation. So uh, we sit down, Hassan Kala, his parents, her parents, and we start schmoozing. It was very cordial. Everyone was very nice. And about 20 minutes into the conversation, her father stops in the middle of the sentence, and he looks me straight in the face, and he points at me. And I'm thinking to myself, what is the guy going to say? He says, Rabbi, I have to warn you, your smile is beginning to make me a believer. <laughs> Caught me off guard. So the truth was, that was the beginning of a very meaningful friendship. At the time, when we were talking about what does an Orthodox wedding look like, what is the basic structure of it, we have the Chassan's Tish, and we have the Bedeckin. I, I wasn't thinking about changing this guy's life. I wasn't changing about, uh, thinking about converting him or making him appreciate Orthodox Judaism, just trying to be a mensch. But people pick up on those small things, and we accomplish major things, even when we're not trying to. 
And the, their relationship with this fellow lasted a few years, and Nebuch, he was very ill. And uh, towards the end of his life, when he didn't want anyone else in the hospital room with him, even family, the one person he would ask for is the rabbi. There was a connection that, that we made. So I think it's true on a national level that great accomplishments we might not even be in tune with. And it's also true on a personal level. He told me that my smile did something for him, but how many times might you have a situation where that person doesn't come over to you and they don't tell you how you changed your life? Sometimes, though, we assume we're accomplishing a lot and we're very successful, but that's because we're using the wrong, the wrong measuring stick. I'll give you an example. You have a person who's well-known, Everybody likes him and looks up to him. Everyone admires him. And he can be a very, very distinguished rabbi. And he's, uh, he's involved with tzedakah and chesed and helping people and visiting people in the hospital and being Menachem Oval, going to the shiva home. Who is more holy than this guy? I can't picture anybody more holy than him. Says Rav Chaim Vital, the main disciple of the Arizal, he said, Ki midosav shel odem, this is source number eight. How is a person judged? Nimdodos ach yechsu el ishto. It's all based on his relationship with his wife. So you can have this person who's, who's, who's admired and viewed as this tremendous tzaddik for all of the amazing things he does, or even all of the Torah knowledge he possesses. However, Yoda Nemona, you should know with clarity. In Shemayim, when I get upstairs, the question is not going to be, how many hits did you have on YouTube? How many people were talking about you at their Shabbos table? The question is going to be one very simple question. Were you a mensch behind closed doors? When you weren't in the spotlight, when you didn't really have that sense of accomplishment, were you accomplishing in those cases? Hayim gami ma gemal chesed koyamov. Were you also being kind and gentle and sensitive to your wife? If so, ashra v'tovlo. If so, that's great. That's wonderful. However, if I was so involved with other things, and therefore I didn't pay attention to, or I neglected those who were closest to me, listen to these words, they're very harsh. Then everything else you were involved with doesn't really count for much. If behind closed doors, I'm not a mensch, everything else I was doing doesn't count for much. So the major accomplishments in life are those things we're doing when we're not being filmed. Those things we're doing when we're not in the spotlight. That defines, that determines whether or not I'm a successful guy. Who in the Torah is referred to as Ish Matzliach? As a person who was really successful. Yosef. Pasuk says, source number nine, that when Yosef was in jail, Hashem was with him, Ish Matzliach, and Yosef was successful. So at least until this point, we have obviously you know, uh, clarified that we don't believe in either wealth or fame as a definition of success, although we easily get sucked into that world. 
We've shown sources that even Gedolei Olam, even great personalities, have a hard time appreciating their accomplishments when they're not tangible. We've also shown sources that sometimes the greatest achievements are those things you can't even point to. But what is the definition of success? So Yosef was a successful person. Comes along the Svorno and defines what does that mean. Masig kol tachlis mechuven mimenu. The reason why he was called an ish matzliach is because he accomplished everything that was intended for him. Meaning to say, I did that which I was here to do. In jail, he had a particular role, and he was able to do it. In life, he had a particular role, and he did it well. That's the definition of Hatzlacha. When we do that which we're created to do, then we're Matzliach. If I'm taking a different path, although more people may hear about me, or I might make more money, then I'm not successful. It's all about doing what I'm here to do. The, the Magid, the Rava Magid, was one of the great commentators in the Rambam. And he has a line here that really, I think, puts this in a very precise way. He says, Yovin ki lekach notzar. When we do a mitzvah, we do something we know is the right thing. And we have an appreciation that I'm doing that which I'm created to do. L'shamesh es kono, to serve my creator. And when I do that which I know I should be doing, then I have the greatest sense of satisfaction and joy. I'm fulfilling my purpose here. Everything else is worthless. Everything else has no meaning. Doing my mission has all the meaning. That is the Torah definition of success. Doing that which was intended for me to do. I heard a story about a, a lady who was a Balash Tshuva, and she was becoming more religious and getting more into Judaism. She was married for a few years and had some kids. The hardest thing in the world for her was the whole shetel idea. And it, it just, it always bothered her for two reasons. She said, first of all, it, I just didn't feel comfortable covering my hair. I've had my hair uncovered for many, many years. It's just not me. And second of all, people will know that I'm different. And even if you're wearing a shaitel, people pick up on these things. Usually not men. But at least women pick up on these things. So she, that was the hardest thing for her. Eventually she said that she made a deal with Hashem. She said she was going through a particular challenge in life. She said, Hashem, if you come through for me, I'm going to put on a shaitel, and I'm going to go to the office with my shaitel on, although I feel extremely awkward. I'm going to do it because I think I'm there. So, lo and behold, Hashem comes through in her time of need, and uh, she puts on the shaitel. The next day, she goes into the office, and she's praying, talking to Hashem quietly. Just please don't let anybody notice it's a wig. I just want to go incognito, I want to do my thing. I don't want people to pick up on the fact that I have a wig. And the day's going by fairly, fairly smooth. 3.30 p.m., there's a, a from a very religious guy, walks into the office. Now, she works in a place where there were no religious Jews around whatsoever. And for some strange reason, 
This guy walks in. He is clearly wealthy. He has that look. He was wearing loafers, <laughs> right? <laughs> loafers and the slick hair. Comes in and uh, literally within a few seconds sees her from across the room. Hey, excuse me. Are you from? Are you Jewish? And she's mortified. She's like, uh, yeah. No, I can tell. Can I ask you a question? So she comes over and introduces herself, and he says, yeah, I'm actually just visiting for a day or so. Is there a, is there a shul around here? So she told the guy where her shul was, a few miles away, and then he asked the question, this is a pretty small place. Is there a school? So she told him, well, there's a school. It's nothing official right now. It's in someone's home. It's a kind of Hamish, but it's coming along. The guy said back to her, how many children do you have? I don't know, about 35, 40. Is it a growing community? Yeah, we have families moving in. So why don't you have like a real building? You should make it into a real school. You'll get more people that way. I'm sure there are many Jews around here who don't have any affiliation. You have a real building, you'll attract more people. And she said with a smile, we would love to, but these things cost a lot of money. How much money does it cost? I don't know, how about this? You could talk to my rabbi and, and the two of you could schmooze. He gives the rabbi a call. He has a flight to catch that evening. He meets with the rabbi that afternoon. An hour later, the community now has $2 million and they build a school. True story. When she put on that shadow in the morning, <laughs> she had no kavana, she had no intention of, I'm going to try to be a fundraiser now for the community and build a school. She was doing something that she felt was right, and she finally had the motivation to go through with it, and it was life-changing. You never know where those sparks are coming from. We can't, uh, we can't blame ourselves when we're feeling despair, when we're feeling that we're not doing much, we're not accomplishing, because great people felt the same way. Yeshaya Hanavi, one of the greatest prophets of all time, after criticizing and rebuking the Jewish people for so many years and not seeing any real change, he turns to Hashem in despair in source number 15, source number 14. He says, I've, I've done all of this work for Rick, for nothing. For worthlessness have I, have I, have I used my energy. Yeshai was saying, I've tried Hashem, I know you've given me this mission to somehow change Kalal Yisrael, and I've failed miserably, and I feel that all of my efforts have been for naught. What's Hashem's response back to Yeshaya? This is the third Pasuk. The Yomra Hashem said to Yeshaya, listen to these words carefully, these words should be our guiding mantra throughout life. Nokil miyosucha li'evid. Is it light in your eyes that you're my evid? Is it, is it meaningless to you to, to be following my mission? Meaning to say, I don't care that you haven't changed Klal Yisrael. That wasn't your job. Your job wasn't to transform the entire world. Your job was to try. Your job was to get up there day in and day out and try to convince them that their whole path in life is wrong and they're warped and they're off. And if they don't change their ways, Hashem is going to destroy the base of Migdash. That was your job. Did you do that? Yeah. 
Hashem's message to Yeshaya, which is really Hashem's message to all of us, accomplishment cannot be measured in a tangible way. Accomplishment cannot be based on, well, what do I have to show for it? Because the definition of Hatzlacha, to be an Ish Matzliach, like Yosef, is to be able to say, when we meet the Boreola, and we stand in front of Hashem, we could say, I did the best I could. I tried to do everything in my power. With all of the resources at my disposal, I tried to fulfill my mission. And if we could say that, that means we've gathered a whole lot of sparks, and we've changed the world. And perhaps in many ways we'll never know. And perhaps only generations later will something that we said as we're dropping off our grandchild at school eventually make an impact where it changes his family and generations to come. But my job is to do what I can. We have a mission. We have to try our best through tefillah. We dive into Hashem to help us. And if we don't see tangible results, we could still take comfort in the realization that we are being matzliach, we're being successful as long as we're trying. Have a wonderful evening.